now we're predicting that whiskey as a whole is going to overtake vodka by 2025. And so- this, people, is why we have to stay strong. Vodka sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to episode 280 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. Before we start looking at projections on where bourbon's heading, here's your weekly bourbon news update. How are you going to be celebrating Repeal Day this year? You can join myself, Fred Minnick, Blake, Breaking Bourbon, Brian Haar from Sippin' Corn, musical artists Lindsay L., Sean James, and many others in a virtual Repeal Day Expo. It's a full day of bourbon-inspired presentations and private concerts. You can get your tickets for the December 5th event at repealdayexpo.com. Is craft whiskey taking over? Well, in Iowa, it is. The Iowa Alcoholic Beverage Division posted the 12-month sales revenue by category, and Cedar Ridge Iowa Straight Bourbon Whiskey is now the number one selling bourbon, surpassing the mass-produced Maker's Mark and Jim Beam as the top seller in the state. Are you a fan of Baker's Bourbon? Well, you can now see the journey that your single barrel takes. Go to bakersbourbon.com slash single dash barrel dash journey and enter the serial number of your bottle. You'll get information about where your barrel was stored, the average weather statistics during its aging period, and more. And starting on November 19th, you can even enter to win an exclusive tasting with Freddie No as well. And moving on to bourbon release news. The Lee Initiative, led by James Beard award-winning chef Edward Lee, who is also a guest back on podcast episode 53, in partnership with Maker's Mark has now announced the launch of the limited edition Community Batch. It's a special release created exclusively to support the trade and hospitality partners across the country. This unique bourbon was actually blended by Maker's Mark private barrel selections featuring 37 distinguished restaurant, bars, and retailers across the country. And here's the stave breakdown. P2, or American Big Pure, was 13%. Seared French Cuvée was 24%, Maker's Mark at 20%, Roasted French Mocha at 27%, and Toasted French Spice Stave at 16%, with a final proof of 107.7. This limited-time offering will be available at select events and opportunities across the country, and can be found at leeinitiative.org makers. Four Roses and Brooklyn Brewery are collaborating on their yearly release of Brooklyn Black Ops, a Russian Imperial Stout that is coming in at 12.4% ABV. In addition to the barrel aging, this brew was re-fermented with champagne yeast. The 2020 Brooklyn Black Ops will be available in limited quantities wherever Brooklyn Brewery is available, with a suggested retail price of $24.99 per bottle. Heaven Hill is celebrating its 85th anniversary with a release of a 13-year-old single-barrel bourbon. The Heaven Hill 85th Anniversary Edition is comprised of one barrel, filled on December 13, 2006, and dumped on December 13, 2019, honoring the anniversary date that Heaven Hill filled its first barrel in 1935. Aged on the second floor of Rickhouse G, the anniversary bottle is cut to 107 proof, which is Heaven Hill's original barrel entry proof back in 1935. It's also non-chill filtered and comes with a custom wooden box, will have a retail price of $300. Buffalo Trace is releasing a new 1995 OFC Vintage, and this 25-year-old bourbon will be available starting in December, and it's the fifth OFC Vintage released with only 1,500 bottles available, with an SRP of $2,500. There are trends with alcohol, and we're currently experiencing the biggest boom there has ever been with bourbon, but is it going to be overshadowed by the seltzer movement? And we all know that COVID has impacted every single business sector. But what has it done to alcohol and, most importantly, bourbon? Well, from the outside, it seems the business is pretty good. But Brandy Rand, the chief operations officer for IWSR, who they specialize in drinks analysis and trends, provides a scientific view as well as a reality check on where this market is moving. To learn more about the trends presented in this podcast and to keep up to date with the IWSR's latest news, you can sign up to receive IWSR's weekly industry insights email at bourbonpursuit.com slash IWSR. Enjoy today's episode. Now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. It's time that we start applying the old rule of never judge a book by its cover to American whiskey. 
Over the past few years, I've seen an uptick of really, really beautiful labels. Just, man, just so cool. Really bring you into the bottle. They've got a story. There's all kinds of coolness around it. And if you're a new whiskey person, you're walking into the store and you're just captured by this bottle that's glowing. You're like, whoa, this is going to be awesome. And then you crack it open. You pour yourself two fingers and it tastes like a big old pile of dog shit. And listen, we've all probably had a little dog shit in our life and you don't want to have to taste that. And you get wooed in by this real pretty label. I don't like that. Listen, I get that brands need to have a cool label. I get that having an artist create something unique for a bottle is what every company wants to do. But can we just have a, a, an agreement that the whiskey's got to pass some kind of a test before it gets a cool label? I'm tired of seeing real pretty bottles that I just absolutely love and then tasting the whiskey. And I'm like, oh, come on, man. I think there should be a law about that. Wait, no, no, no law. No more government regulation. But it is time that we start saying, like, ugly bottles may actually have the best whiskey. So the next time you're out shopping for a fresh bottle of bourbon, don't judge it by the label. Judge it by the whiskey. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you have an idea for Above the Char, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, or fredminnick.com. Just look for my name, Fred Minnick. Until next week, cheers. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Knows Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to knowsyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Welcome back to the episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny here today talking with a guest about data. Now, this is one thing that we always love on the show is to kind of look at what are the trends, what are the market disruptors, and kind of what's the future of bourbon going to look like. And our guest today is going to be one person that's going to be able to kind of talk about it uh, in a lot of depth. You know, we tried to get Fred on today. Fred had a little bit of technical difficulties, but we'll be able to kind of move on without him. We'll kind of make it happen. 
But one thing that I kind of learned about our guest is I, I found about her name through a few different conferences. You can Google her. She's got a few different YouTube videos out there of other places that she's spoken at. And that's when I find out about IWSR. And it's really a, a drinks analysis kind of firm. And I'm not going to butcher because I'm going to let her explain what it is. But we use a lot of the information that comes from IWSR for even some of the openings we do for our podcast, giving you the latest information on what's happening with bourbon, as well as market trends uh, in regards of like seltzers and cannabis and all this other kind of stuff, because they have a huge view of everything that's going on. And we'll kind of talk about, you know, how they're stiffing out that data a little bit, too. (laughs) So. With that, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guest. So today on the show, we have Brandy Rand. Brandy is the COO, the Chief Operating Officer for the Americas of IWSR. So Brandy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Great. So one thing before we kind of dive into you and IWSR is we always like to start the show with some random icebreaker. So the one we have today is kind of roll back the hands of time here and start thinking about in your childhood who was your actor or actress crush when you were growing up? Um, I'm embarrassed to say I know this one off the top of my head. Um, and it was Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron. Okay. Remember him back from the Growing Pains days? Yes, I do. Yeah. So I, I was an 80s child. Uh, so I'm dating myself. So I remember all those sitcoms, The Family Ties and The Growing Pains. And uh, I, I kind of had a thing for Ricky Schroeder too, I have to say, from Silver Spoons. So yeah, dating myself a little Those bit. are some good shows you're bringing up right there. I mean, I was I was an 80s child too. And so for me, I kind of have I kind of have two um, because I think about my childhood. I always remember waking up for school and always catching Saved by the Bell. So like Tiffany Amber Thiessen was oh, always, yeah. always the top yeah. one. And then what was it? It was like TGIF. Remember those days? Like uh, and I think like Boy Meets World was on there and like Topanga. Topanga was the other one. So yeah, Saved by the Bell. Yeah, I forgot about that. Was a good one as well. But I don't know why I had a thing. I had a thing for Kirk Cameron. And funny enough, uh, years later when I was in between, uh, I think my freshman and sophomore year of college, I went and interned in Washington D.C. on the Hill for a congressman. And um, for some reason or another, Kirk Cameron was there advocating for some cause. And I ended up being able to meet him in person. And like this always happens in the the few times I've met celebrities, um, the men are often way shorter than they appear uh, in person. And I'm I'm about 5'8 and with heels a little taller. So you have this image that all of these guys are going to be these strapping, like six foot tall, like huge, you know, guys. And then I'm always taller than them. And so somehow the crush just goes right away. <laughs> so sorry, Kirk. Uh, they say never to beat your idols sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It, the screen does uh, make everybody appear very different. So, <laughs> well, that's uh, that's good. I, I always love touching on like '80s TV shows because there's a lot of good memories. I think that everybody can just pull from that era and that time. There's iconic yeah. actors and actresses that you know. Again, it's just start jogging a lot of good memories that that we all have. Yeah, and they're trying to reboot all the good stuff too. I think um, '80s movies. I mean, by far in my mind, the the '80s movies that were out there are kind of these classics, and they kind of come back around again. And you see that culture because they don't make movies like that anymore. Everyone's trying to blow things up, and you know, it's all about action, which is fine. But there was something really endearing about those kind of character movies, and so I think you're starting to see especially with this, you know, younger generations that are coming around that, I mean, I saw the high-waisted jeans coming back and you're seeing this revival into these old shows. So I wouldn't be surprised if we started seeing a, a reboot of our favorites. Yeah. I mean, we've already seen it with Dirty Dancing, right? So that's already oh, happened, you know? Is it? Is it? Oh, oh yeah. Jennifer oh, yeah. Gray? Yep. But Fred is actually able to join us now. Yay. Finally got <laughs> some technical technicalities worked out. Yeah. You know, by the way, I want to point out the technicalities were not mine. They were the software that we use. And uh, so I am hereby indemnified from, uh, you know, Kenny chastising me. So So kind of give everybody an overview of IWSR real quick so they kind of understand where you're coming from and, and, you know, how you're pulling all this data. So before I started in the data world, I actually was on the, the the brand owner or the supplier side. So I've been in the BevAlk industry, got almost 20 years um, back in the days when um, you couldn't give Japanese whiskey away. So that's how long ago that was. 
Um, and after spending a lot of times working on uh, a ton of the brands, ones behind you on your shelves, I um, got involved on the, the data and the insight side of the business. So what we do is we're the only global beverage alcohol sort of data and insights company. So we track consumption around 160 countries, um, all categories, all brands, all the trends and forecasting. So we kind of get in each market, see what are the key drivers, look at price point, things like premiumization, people paying more, um, new brands and, and new trends that we sort of track overall. So I've been here for almost five years and my job is pretty cool in the sense I get to go around and talk to people about you know, alcohol and, and trends and on all these different kind of underlying consumption drivers, why we drink the things we do. And before before all that, she she used to run uh, a really awesome um, uh, event called Thirst Boston. I did, yeah. So I started that. I had a little um, maybe an early midlife crisis. So I had this uh, period of time where I was working for a lot of different companies, and I said, you know, I want to take a break and do some fun stuff. So I started doing a lot of writing. Um, I dealt with on the marketing and PR side a lot. And I felt at the time there weren't a lot of people that were doing a great job sort of talking about the industry, or if they did, they talked about it from an outside perspective. So I started doing writing, uh, consulting, uh, launched Thirst because we didn't have really a good cocktail competition in Boston um, and did a did a whole bunch of kind of fun things and then ended up making my way back to the industry, but but on this side of the business. So yeah, that I think that's maybe how I met I met Fred. I remember having drinks with you at Tales of the Cocktail one, one steamy summer somewhere too. Yeah, you, uh, I think that was my, I think that was my very first, uh, professional presentation it was in 2012 at, um, at Thirst Boston, which still is one of my favorite presentation rooms in that hotel. So yeah, that was cool. There was, that was that, that age, I think where you started seeing more and more consumers get really involved in what they were drinking and trying to learn more. So before it was sort of just in a cocktail renaissance, this bartender era where bartenders were really bringing back the classics and paying more attention to brands and provenance and where things came from. And then with the advent of a lot of these, these cocktail conferences, all of that started kind of going to, to consumers and people became much more interested about what they were drinking. And people like Fred and uh, you know a lot of great professionals in the industry had an opportunity now to talk to consumers. And so you had this education, I think, in the spirits industry that's been really driving a lot of the growth that we're seeing. What made you want to get into the data side? You know, I, um, data drives everything, you know, is, and in this industry, what's really interesting to me is, you know, brand owners always have done consumer groups and looked at how they segment occasions, right? How they target, uh, the different types of consumers that drink the brands. And over the past several years, I have seen certainly what we call cross category consumption. So it used to be, you know, back in the days when I worked for, uh, Allied Demec, which is no longer, and I worked on Kahlua and Kahlua. I mean, you could, you could count who the Kahlua consumer was. They were going to drink Kahlua till they died with a bottle in their hand and you knew your marketing strategy and you built everything around knowing that consumer. Um, today, everybody drinks across categories. So I'm sure, um, and you will admit to this because I'm going to admit to this, but in one given day, you can maybe start with um, a beer and then have a glass of wine with dinner and then maybe have an old fashioned uh, after dinner. So you can drink across categories in one day and more and more consumers now are less loyal to particular categories or brands. And that's where we've seen a huge change or shift in the industry. And I think data is critical from all tiers, not only just the brand owners, but we're seeing now in distributors, you know, retailers, even on-premise operators have to understand how these trends are evolving and changing so they can figure out how to give consumers what they want. And so speaking of those trends and, and data gathering, how, how are you actually doing this data gathering? I mean, you have bugs that are placed inside of like R&DC warehouses that no. are just like <laughs> shipping back information of orders. Like how, you know, how is that happening? So, so the U.S. is a bit complicated and I have the fun job, you know, when I was hired at IWSR, um, cause we're, we're headquartered in, in London, we're a global company. And my job was to sort of grow the, the U.S. market and really make our U.S. data, you know, bar none in terms of, of measuring. And we look at annual consumption. So the difference in what we do is we're looking at the total volumes annually. So it's very different than scan data, which covers, um, kind of, about 30% of the market and looks at mostly key big grocery stores and chains. 
So we've always had this model for now 50 years because we have data going back to the 90s of really working with uh, brand owners, with importers, with distributors, with trade organizations. So the Scotch associations and the wine associations looking at import export data, but looking country by country and people sort of look at us as the is the third party industry source for data. So somebody has to gather all of this across all of the countries and have some view on how big is vodka, how big is tequila, what's going on in China, what are the five-year growths by different price bands. So we're sort of like the industry's trusted, you know, aggregator of all of this information. And then we verify it and we cross-check it. Because in some markets, you know, we have analysts on the ground in every market. And some of these have been covering, you know, markets for 10 or 15 years and they see some crazy stuff. I mean, there are people that are packing, you know, packets of alcohol on donkeys and bringing it over, you know, mountain ranges to get to um, places where alcohol is illegal or it's cheaper because of taxation. So there's a lot of this um, really interesting activity that happens market to market. So we try to track and look at all of that and talk about the why behind the numbers. My view is that Gosh, there's a lot of numbers and a lot of data, particularly in the U.S., but if you're not understanding why it's happening and then what to do with it, then it's not really helpful. So we try to add some some insights and some views on, on what's going on. So you have tracing capabilities on donkeys? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I was going to say, I, pref- I prefer my distributors <laughs> move all my bourbon with donkeys. It's the yeah. only way. Um, yeah, we, we, we primarily work with a lot of, of, you know, of the brand owners on looking at, um, sort of helping them figure out where to go next, you know, and what are the big, big emerging markets. So when you look at sub-Sahara Africa and India and markets where, um, you're seeing a big changes. Uh, we've even started tracking e-commerce over the past couple of years as a channel for beverage alcohol, because it's becoming more and more, uh, important. So the other part we start, you know, really what I'm interested in is kind of talk about where have you seen the growth of the bourbon market? I think when we talk to a lot of, you know, master distillers and people that are supposed to be forecasting for today's production, in which we see what people are pushing out, I don't think people were actually able to guess what the, you know, what, what today would actually become in regards to the boom of bourbon. Do you have any idea of like how you all were tracking stuff, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago? And if you were actually able to see this this sort of thing happening on the horizon? Yes. Yeah, so what we do, we do five-year forecasts. Um, and that's pretty unique to us is, is we're looking at by price band sort of where we are forecasting growth. So um, we use all these you know, different scenario-based forecasting and data programming models and, and common sense uh, to some degree, because market by market, you have to look at the different mitigating factors that may um, drive certain categories or price bands down. So economic impact, um, you know, tariffs, all of these things that could affect um, pricing or, or what's going on. And also, so um, in general, you look at how many producers are um, placing their bets or, or building distilleries and laying down barrels to age and sort of looking at that potential inventory that's coming in the market. So between all of those things, you know, yes, we, we've seen um, that growth in U.S. whiskey and it's been happening sort of consistently. And in the next five years, we see it. Um, U.S. whiskey in particular is going to be up almost 20 percent in the next five years. Um, and as you guys know, there's, you know, now I think as many barrels of whiskey aging as there was uh, in the 1970s. So we've gone through this very cyclical process where, you know, the U.S. was a whiskey drinking nation back in, you know, the 50s and 60s. And then Fred's favorite vodka started rearing its ugly head in the uh, in the 60s, right? And I don't know if you, you Fred, you probably know all these stories, but I always like to, to tell people it's like, you know, the Moscow Mule, I remember there's Smirnoff was doing Woody Allen ads with the Moscow Mule back in the late 60s. And the reason why vodka, there's this whole story about how uh, it came about and it's really marketing and advertising and Smirnoff sort of leading the way. But um, I always found it really interesting that at the time, because everyone, this mad men culture of people drinking whiskey all the time, the whole campaign with vodka is it, it leaves you breathless, meaning you, you can't smell you can't smell the vodka on me. Um, so it's, it's a really kind of funny story. So the vodka started becoming, you know, in the, um, in the mid seventies is the first time it really sort of overtook, um, us whiskey in particular, and it's sort of grown. And of course we all lived through the eighties the and nineties and that terrible martini culture, um, that happened. But if you look at the data back kind of 
you know, decades ago and you see these lines of vodka and whiskey kind of competing. And if you look at the entire whiskey category, right? So with scotch and Canadian whiskey, um, you see vodka. Um, so whiskey was sort of ahead of the curve. Vodka took it over. And now we're predicting that whiskey as a whole is going to overtake vodka by 2025. And so, this, people, is why we have to stay strong. Vodka sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're you're gonna have a new T-shirt made. Like 2025, yeah. this is our year. That's gonna, the year. <laughs> you know, we 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 were predicting it to be a little bit earlier, and then COVID sort of um, you know had an effect with stuff. Certainly in the tariffs with Scotch whiskey, um, you know, imports down and and all this nastiness going on. Um, but you know, in general, you know, vodka still is the biggest uh, spirits category. But what's more interesting than this is the fact that hard seltzers are bigger than vodka in the U.S. right now. Ooh, that is interesting. You know, I, would you do you classify the canned cocktails as hard seltzers? Because a lot of them actually have spirits in it. I've always, I'm curious because the data seems to be flawed there. Okay, you're you're 100 right. So this is a really interesting topic. So in the U.S., um, the way that a lot of uh, data providers look at um, hard seltzer, which is typically malt based, and the TTB has different regulations as to what um, you can be substitutes for malts in terms of fermented fermented beverages. So a lot of malt based hard seltzers are actually fermented from sugar, um, but that's a, a, a substitute you can use for malt. Because it's malt-based, um, people lump it under beer. And as we know, the beer category has been suffering for you know over a decade and sort of have been declining. Um, but when you stick seltzers under beer because it's malt, it makes it look a little bit better. IWSR has always tracked any, uh, whether it's malt, wine, or spirits-based, we've always tracked them as a separate category, which we just call ready-to-drink or RTDs. So that's Smirnoff Ice and Mike's Hard Lemonade, Twisted Teas, all the canned cocktails, Fred, that are now super popular, so that we've always kept that category separate. And what's interesting is that um, because we've kept it separate, we started noticing, certainly by last year, what a big share hard seltzers was taking out of total beverage alcohol. And I remember doing a, a big beer conference um, and you know talking to a lot of our wine and spirits clients and saying, hey guys, you gotta pay attention to seltzers. And typically like RTDs have been very fad-based. So remember the um the hard sodas and things where something kind of comes in at some weird flavor and then it goes away the next year. Well, hard seltzers we started seeing was not only pulling from beer drinkers and other RTD drinkers, but also wine and spirit drinkers. And there's a number of factors related to that, but we saw the share that hard seltzers was taking. And if you just pull that category out by itself at, in 2019, at the end of last year, it was about a two and a half percent share of beverage alcohol. By 2024, if you look at hard seltzers combined with the other RTDs, so canned cocktails, so the whole RTD category compared to wine, beer, and spirits, RTDs are going to be bigger than spirits in the United States in the next five years. So no. this, yep, by share, by volume share, not value, but by volume share, meaning just case by case equivalency, um, just in pure volume, that whole RTD category. And we're seeing it grow globally as well. So RTDs has been one of the only categories globally that's been actually growing consistently for the last three years. And I like them. I mean, I've, I've had some RTDs that are tasty, you know, yeah. I mean, they're, they're not replacing a whiskey neat, they're replacing, you know, a cold beer, you know, so I or or my lazy ass making a cocktail. You know, so it's like they get me in a moment where I eh, I don't want to make a cocktail. It's just and eh, I don't really want a beer. So I RTDs, man. And what about on that portability and convenience? Is that a big factor for you too? Huge, yeah. Like so, you get on a boat, boom, you got it right there. You know, so like there's, um, it, but but if they didn't taste good, then you know we'd have a problem. Like you know, some really big names have gotten involved. Like Jack Daniels has obviously has a, a line out, but in kind of more in the connoisseur world, Amanda Victoria came out with her own line of, um, her own line of RTDs, which is basically, it's a rye, a four-year-old rye, a New York rye and honey. And it's delicious. Absolutely delicious. So. Yeah. And I think that demand, um, I mean, there's a couple of reasons and I, I think it sort of took everybody a little bit by surprise. So in my time in the industry, you haven't had a category 
that's managed to pull across all other categories and also appeal to all ages and all demographics. And I think the intent of hard seltzers, you know, they launched in 2016 by um, Boathouse Beverages in Connecticut with the first one, which was called Spiked Seltzer, um, later bought by uh, Anheuser-Busch and turned into now what is Bon and Viv. Uh, but originally the idea was sort of like, hey, this is a substitute a little bit for vodka soda, but it's more convenient and portable. And um, it also has flavor. So if you look at that category, there's a couple of trends that are going on globally right now, and that's kind of health wellness. So better for you, better for the world. What am I, what am I drinking? Um, and authenticity and provenance and all these sort of things that matter that are driving um, whiskey and cognac and tequila. People want to understand where things come from. Um, and they want to know what they're drinking. And I think um, to some degree that convenience factor is a big one, but also most of the seltzers put calories on the can. They put gluten-free or low sugar and people that are kind of health conscious say, you know what, I know I can count on my hand. I can have X number of these. This is how many, you know, hours on the treadmill or whatever it is. Um, and it's, it's more of that that's sessionable, right? Because you can, you can't have, you know, 10 whiskeys in one sitting, or maybe, maybe you guys can, my tolerance couldn't handle it, but at least to, to be able to drop in a, a seltzer or a canned cocktail at a lower ABV, you still get that experience without, um, the higher ABV. I mean, we're we're not infallible to ten whiskeys at at a at a sit down. So don't don't think that our tolerance is any better than yours. But I also see that you know the RTD category is it is booming, and the seltzer thing. I think you know I think when it first started, you know, with the the you know the truly the white claw thing, we all kind of were like, oh, it's a fad, it's fun, it's easy. But now I, I think we all see that it's going to stick around. I've also seen that there are other distilleries, you know, during COVID that are looking at kind of like a pseudo RTD, more or less like cocktails to go as their, as their sort of way to, to kind of stay alive. I mean, have you seen sort of that, that cocktails to go movement really start spiking? I mean, of course, because of COVID, like how do you see this as being a, an ongoing trend as well? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, part of it is the, the legal ramifications, right? So where states are allowing uh, on-premise operators to do cocktails to go, it's certainly helping from an economic recovery perspective. And a lot of them have extended that even into next year. Um, each on-premise establishment in terms of how they choose to take advantage of that, I've seen um, you know local restaurants that are actually making and bottling their own cocktails, so more of the craft bars. And then there are some that just for um, convenience sake may go to one of the really great, I mean, there's a lot of really good, like Fred mentioned, high quality premium canned cocktails coming from small producers and established people in the industry that want to provide that option. So there's been that confluence of events, I think, with this growth in um, and the convenience factor of seltzers, it's really moved into canned cocktails. And, and that um, for a lot of these on-premise operators is a really good opportunity to, if they can't because it's expensive to make cocktails to go, right? So you have to have some sort of a vessel. The, each state has different laws into how, how many ounces can go in there. Um, but if you want a more convenient way, then you can actually start selling more of those, those canned cocktails. So you're seeing that. Um, to your point about local and also craft, you know, we do a lot of work in the craft spirit space every year. We do this, um, you know, big sort of study and talk to a lot of the craft distillers and, and this, the industry to see, you know, how craft is, is faring. And we're doing some work now and, and seeing that a lot of these craft distillers are starting to um, go into development of some sort of a canned cocktail because they know that's a growth area and they too are trying to find ways in addition to hand sanitizer, right, that they can um, start really growing um, their business and, and capitalize on a trend. And I think the other thing that the RTD market, maybe it's a little bit hard too, is you just can't put something in a can and ship it out. I mean, you've got to have materials and ingredients that actually, you know, they preserve well. And because if it's going to have, it's going to sit on the shelf for three months, you don't want to sit there and make bitters one day and then realize like, oh, these, these bitters actually turn bad in a few weeks. So I think, you know, it's, it's not as easy as somebody saying like, oh, okay, I'm just going to get in the RTD market tomorrow. There is, there is a lot of research that, that goes into it. No, absolutely. And I think the other part is that um, the way our, our lovely taxes here in the U.S. work is it's cheaper to make malt-based beverages than it is to make spirit or wine-based. So they're taxed higher. So a lot of the conversation early on is, you know, will consumers be willing to pay more? 
for a spirit base. So rye, vodka, gin, gin and tonic in a can, will they be willing to pay more? And if you notice at the store, usually when you're buying canned cocktails, they come in maybe a four pack. Um, and it's, you know, 12, 13, $14 versus if you were buying, you know, a 12 pack of hard seltzers for the same cost. Um, but again, I think there's that convenience factor that's really great. Like, hey, I'm in the mood for a margarita or an old fashioned or a gin and tonic, and I'm going on a boat or going outside. Um, and I think more and more people People want to drink what they want to drink, where they want to drink it, right? And consumers are driving a lot of the changes in the beverage alcohol industry across the board. Yeah. To, to kind of bring it back to bourbon a little bit, you know, you had mentioned already, you know, tariffs. And I, I kind of want to talk about the, the kind of the global market demand. Kind of, and I know Fred is very passionate about this subject because he had talked about this uh, in an article way early on when the tariffs were first starting saying this is going to just be bad for everybody. And we've said it many times on the podcast before that there is a, a misnomer when people say to themselves like, Oh great, more bourbon for Americans kind of talk about really like what we've seen is the global impact so far of tariffs on bourbon as well as scotch whiskey and stuff like that. Yeah. So, I mean, both scotch whiskey, um, Imports into the U.S. of I think I'm down like 30, 30%. Um, and the price has to go somewhere, right? So you have price increases, which, you know, are passed along to the consumer. So you can, depending on which side of, of the aisle you're on, you can look at it a couple of different ways. So certainly does that create more opportunities for domestic products? And we've seen um, globally when you start having tariffs and this sort of thing happen, you start to see people sort of move to more domestic products in, in one in one way um, and also find other options if the price becomes, you know, um, intolerable for them at that point. So what are the substitutions? Um, and American whiskey is a, you know, a top export for spirits in the U.S., right? So that's really important for us um, is exporting U.S. whiskey to other markets. And uh, Europe in particular is such a large export market. And that's been down, I think, also around 30%, um, you know, in, in the years since they imposed the tariffs. And so now I think there's a lot of uh, back and forth, you know, in terms of, and there's been tariffs on certain wine from certain countries. So you're seeing a lot of um, people that are really getting, um, really getting hurt by that, especially small, you know, importers, um, a lot of these restaurant wines and smaller brands uh, where they're really, you know, getting another tariff hike because it was, I think, 25%. Now, if it goes up to, uh, they're saying sometimes even 100%. I mean, that could just put a lot of people out of business. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not good. It's not good at all. Fred, do you want to chime in there? Well, I think, you know, when we, you know, in the bourbon world, um, everybody thought that mean that they would see more Buffalo Trace and Pappy Van Winkle on the shelves and things like that. And, um, you know, while things have pivoted a little bit domestically, in the tariff war, it's actually been pretty bad. It's been it's been really bad for every company. You know, the small ones can't get a foot in the door overseas, and the big ones are having to lay people off because they no longer have those positions that they can justify if they're losing 125 million a year on an export. So, I guess talking about like what what have you seen the bourbon distillers do? Um, you know, to pivot with the uh, with the tariffs and COVID. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. 
and that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. What have you seen the bourbon distillers do, um, you know, to pivot with the uh, with the tariffs and COVID? In terms of how they're marketing to consumers or products or in general? Yeah, like, yeah, I think more of long, you know, are, are you seeing like, are you seeing them like shift their their efforts internationally to domestically? Are you seeing that, you know, change a little bit? Like, what are you what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, so so whiskey in general, I mean, travel retail, and that's like a whole other sort of sector of the of the market that, you know, a lot of people don't really think about. But if in, in the beverage alcohol business, especially for spirits, and especially for whiskey, travel retail is really important. And what, what that is, is, is the duty free shop. So when you're traveling, and you go into the duty free, and you can often get um, certain um, finishes, ages, and special editions, right? People can only get if you're at Heathrow Airport or in Singapore. Um, that has always been a really uh, important channel or discovery uh, market for um, spirits, especially high-end spirits. And so travel retail has uh, been killed uh, the last, you know, nobody's traveling. Um, so that has been, had a huge impact, right? So you have travel retail that's de declining. So when you look at from a global perspective, the the whiskey market, travel retail is is an addition to tariffs um, being uh, imposed as is a as a challenge. Um, U.S. is such an important market, uh, of course. So whether it's import or exports, what we're talking about, um, and so you have to look at you know where. Um, People can make up other other. You know, we have emerging markets like Asia Pacific and India and Africa. So you're looking at do you start reallocating um, some of that inventory to markets where you can place bets and get some growth if you uh, don't want to have to do price increases or um, and deal with other elements of that. So there's a couple of different um, things. You know, you, no one's ever going to stop focus on the U.S. I think that it's always going to be critically important. But certainly when you look at growth in emerging markets and and trying to sort of um, mitigate you know, risk, but also at the same time, figure out how you can keep managing the inventory. It becomes a really, um, you know, a bit of a chess game. That was definitely one market that I didn't really think about was that travel retail thing. I mean, we all know about the time that you, you'll travel through an airport and yeah, there's special editions and stuff like that. And I'm sure COVID's killed a lot of that. And who knows when we'll see that. Just decimated. Come back. Yeah. <laughs> decimated. Yeah. I mean, and it's also travel retail is a big, when you talk about experience as a, as a kind of a trend that's been happening for some time, you know, it used to be, uh, people purchasing alcohol, there weren't a lot of brands, right? So you would just sort of say, Hey, I go into a bar and you just say, I want a gin and tonic or I want a whiskey, right? Cause there weren't a lot of brands decades ago. And then you started seeing more and more brands, more and more premiumization, more and more consumer education, more and more brands, more and more choice. Um, and so creating an experience to stand out, especially, uh, for consumers, um, and these, all these trips, you know, people going to Kentucky to, to go do the bourbon trail, people visiting Scotland, um, that experiential part of it, a lot of travel retail sort of recreated that. So you'd see, and, and I'm sure you guys have been through the airports where you go and you see this really cool, like, um, almost a recreation of a distillery experience and tastings and stuff. And because you have time on your hands waiting for an often delayed flights, um, travel retail really provided uh, an excellent opportunity to create an experience for travelers um, and discover new brands. So it was almost like this microcosm of, of, of a better sort of combination between an on trade and off trade uh, tasting and experience all in one. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's something that will recover, of course, but it certainly has had a big, um, you know, impact on the industry. So I've had uh, I've had brands who've like looked at your data, and some of them will say like, "Yeah, that's pretty spot on for for our numbers," and some will say, "Yeah, that's 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 not right." So, like, there you'll have like uh, like how do you get your your individual brand data? Is it is it based on like point of sale uh, with with various outlets? How do you get that? 
So I think when you were uh, you were dealing with your tech issues, I talked a little bit about that. But but at a high level, you know, we don't we're not using scanner data, um, so we're capturing total market volumes because we only track annually, and we primarily work with um, the industry, um, so brand owners themselves um, across um, all markets, and also you know key other industry folks. So we collect all of that as sort of the this this third party for the industry to be able to help. So it's them like figure self, out it's self reported. Yeah, but we we look at everything in terms of um, validation within each individual market. So we have country researchers. So we have 160 countries, and we have people who track every single market. So we get in and collect. It's a you know six month plus process where we're collecting all of the data, and then we're looking at everything from government data to to um, production data to things that we um, work with, talking to local market trends because often putting something in one market, we know stuff goes across border or goes to different areas. So we always try to track what we call actual consumption. So, you know, we don't give out awards. Um, we are not a publishing company. So giving us, you know, uh, fake numbers to get some sort of a, a gold star isn't really our, um, what we do. We're all about um, data, um, actual data and insights of tracking, again, annualized data to look at benchmarking performance. So when companies want to see how are they performing versus a competitor? What is the market size in China for um, U.S. whiskey at $35? Um, it's very strategic and benchmarking. Um, in the U.S. in particular, and we're very different than the, the channel tracking data, and, and those guys are great, but they have a different purpose. That's more blocking and tackling at skew level. Um, that's not what we do. We do something very different. And when you want to get tactical about which stores to be in, um, which zip codes to be in, how different sizes of products are performing, um, that's when you would use the scanner data, and that's just different than, than what we do. Yeah, I mean, you guys are looking at Globally, this is a whole like what's the impact of 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 a lot of these entrants to the market, the trends, everything like that. Uh, now, one of the things that that I'm interested to kind of know about is the we've all seen with with COVID, we've seen that spirit sales have been on the rise, bourbon sales, everything has been on the rise. Now, this can also be attributed to a little bit of like say like stockpiling, maybe some worrying. Do you feel that like this is going to plateau? Or has it plateaued or is it going to continually keep rising? Because we keep seeing reports, you know, every week of, of other data that's coming in of saying like, you know, these states have seen 30% growth in spirit sales versus, you know, this state and stuff like that. So what, what do you kind of see as like, is stockpiling kind of over or do you think that's going to continue to go? Well, I think, well, first kind of go back to both what you and Fred are saying. I mean, listen, you can make data work any way you want. So whether you're tracking one week, five weeks, 12 weeks, which channels, I mean, there's there's ways to always make numbers. So, so Fred, back to what you say, if someone's like, well, we show the data differently. Well, there's a lot of questions you have to ask. What period of time are you tracking? Are you tracking just retail? Are you tracking retail and on-premise? Are you accounting for on-premise markups? Um, are you looking at annual? I mean, so there's a million different questions. So I, just like you guys, see headlines all over the place um, from different data providers and trade organizations, but everybody has their own methodology for how they aggregate and how they collect data. And it's not right or wrong. It's just you have to sort of figure out what are they talking about? Are they talking about this particular channel? What period of time are they tracking? Is it a, a week over week change? Is it a year ago versus this year? So there's there's just a lot of these factors. And I always like to tell people that because there is no right or wrong. It's again, how, how are you looking at that data and, and how are you using that data is important. And then also how you categorize stuff, right? So Fred, to your point, um, when we talk about seltzers or, or we talk about beer, for example, we're talking about just beer without FMBs. And if you look at other data sources, they may say, well, we include seltzers and beers up versus down. So there's all those little questions I think that you have to ask when you're looking at it, because everybody has a different way of, of sort of collecting data. Um, but in regard to your question of sort of so far this year, I mean, certainly uh, on-premise shut down, people started transferring funds that they would spend uh, on-premise at grocery, um, buying food, um, beverages. So uh, I think that that was just a trend overall. If you look at the scanner data, um, and the scanner data tracks mostly, uh, you know, large uh, chain accounts and uh, retail accounts. And you can see sort of these you know, huge dollar trends, right, of people buying. But that misses out on, you know, independence. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a good, I think, indicator of larger trends just volumetrically, but it's not the entire picture. Um, and you did see a lot of increases and in some kind of key trends going through. But ultimately, and, and you guys have heard this, um, 
it, it really depends on where you sit. So if you are a large, well-known top 10 brand that has distribution in every grocery store and it has an e-commerce strategy and is at a really great price, um, you're probably going to do really, really well because you're just positioned. Um, if you are a brand that is um, on allocation, that most of your business is weighted to the on-premise that is now shut down. Um, you have distribution in independent mom and pop liquor stores. Well, then you're going to have a very different experience as to what's going on. So I always like to sort of talk about, again, it depends on where you sit, what state are you in, what phase are you at for reopenings or closings, right? There's not an easy answer. I think we're all looking at sort of these these trends and we can make some general generalizations, but it's going to be some time before we can really look back and say, this is exactly what happened in, in 2020. Um, I see the earnings reports for a lot of the, the big producers like you do, and some of them really are suffering um, based on the types of products. Uh, and others are actually saying, hey, you know what, in the US, we managed to really do a little bit better in North America because uh, we're typically 80-20 here, meaning about 80% of the business is at retail and 20% is at bars and restaurants. If you go over to the United Kingdom, for example, for beer, almost 50% of beer volumes in the United Kingdom are at pubs. So when pubs shut down, I mean, it has a 50% difference. It's very different to here in the US where it's less than 20%. So we've had the benefit. And when I, and I talk to a lot of our, our global clients, the U.S. is always, uh, and you look at the the, the kind of downward curves and the and the forecast we have as a result of COVID. And the U.S. is actually a pretty resilient market compared to other markets, right? So we're predicting some slight declines, and a lot of that again are driven by beer, which was declining anyway, cider, which was declining anyway, wine, which was already softening, but spirits and RTDs are actually weathering the storm of what we're going through really well. But that was a trend that was sort of happening before, and it's just been accelerated um, through COVID. So we're not seeing anything that's super surprising in terms of suddenly, oh my God, everybody's, you know, switching and drinking cider all of a sudden. It's just, it's, it's the same kind of trend um, levels. It's just the, their volumetrically might shift a little bit because of the, the channels. For sure. And I think you, you brought up two other kind of points in here and I kind of want to see how this affects the data. Uh, you mentioned e-commerce and also throw in shipping. Um, do you all track those and sort of how does, how do those two facets really play into, you know, the overall data that you are tracking or uh, sales or growth or strategies, anything like that? So that's a, that's a great question. You know, a couple of years ago, we started getting a lot of calls from our clients saying, you know, hey, um, you know, what's the size of the e-commerce channel for beverage alcohol? Um, and we do a study every year that goes across um, 20 markets, like the, the kind of top e-commerce markets where we were the first to kind of take a stab at saying, what is the size of the e-commerce opportunity in China in South Korea, in the UK, in Spain, in the US first. So just what, what is the number? And because we already are tracking total beverage alcohol and on-off premise splits in general, from that annual perspective, we first sized the market. And then we started looking at um, key retailers, brands, and laws. And believe it or not, there's a lot of countries where it's illegal to sell beverage alcohol online. Um, one really interesting development is as a result of, of COVID is India. Uh, India didn't allow e-commerce sales. You could order and reserve things online, but you had to actually go in store in India um, to pay for it and pick it up, which isn't great for impulse buying if you have to wait to go in store to pay for something if you're just reserving. Um, because of the, the pandemic, um, there were a lot of uh, health concerns in India because people were crowding the stores to get their alcohol. So they decided India to start doing trials uh, for e-commerce to actually allow a true e-commerce system where you could pay for stuff online and then go pick it up to help with, um, with really what was a which was safety issue. And we've seen in other markets as well where um, where e-commerce is sort of illegal and you're seeing that consumer demand accelerated by the pandemic really driving e-commerce. So um, in the U.S., a couple of years ago and even to now, it was about 2% of, of share, right, of e-commerce for total beverage alcohol, right? Very small. There are a lot of people who just don't know you can buy alcohol online. Right. And also it depends on what state you live in, because we are this really fun three tier system and every state manages their own sort of uh, laws when it comes to beverage alcohol. It, it is and I am no expert here. I don't think anybody can keep track of it, but it's, you know, depending on where you live, depending on if it's wine, depending on if you're ordering from a craft uh, producer or someone who's making it 
um, intrastate shipping, out-of-state shipping. I mean, there's just a patchwork of different laws that make it really complicated. But what's happening is consumers are saying, wait, if I go to Colorado and I like this you know, craft beer, what do you mean I can't take it home with me or just ship it home? You know, I live in Rhode Island and I was, last time I was in um, California, I, I can't ship wine back to Rhode Island. Um, so it's just, you're seeing more and more demand for consumers, especially now saying, hold on a second. Um, I want to have access to order things. Why, why can't I do this? And you're seeing sort of more movement in that direction. And I would suspect, I mean, we're in the middle of, of sizing up sort of what's going on with e-commerce right now, but it's easily, the shares easily doubled. So our five-year projections have probably already happened this year alone. So that's really exciting for beverage alcohols. People have figured out like, hey, I can order online. Um, it also is creating a lot of opportunities for producers of all sizes because everyone was forced to interact with consumers online, you've started seeing people change their business models and get really creative and actually have some really great results and saying, hey, let me talk to the consumers, you know, directly and let me try something different. And consumers, of course, everyone's stuck at home or at home more than they usually are. Everybody's, you know, thirsty for information, for knowledge. They're learning how to bake bread. They're, they're learning how to make cocktails. Their, you know, subscriptions to masterclass have gone up, subscriptions to online yoga and Peloton and all that stuff. So there's a real opportunity now I think to connect with consumers online and e-commerce is really part of that fulfillment process. Yeah, I mean we've we've all seen the growth of e-commerce now uh, through through this whole pandemic, and honestly, we've been a big proponent and and champion of e-commerce and shipping because we see that as that's the next evolution. It all it takes is a technology wave to disrupt what this country has been you know, at status quo now for God, how many years, right? You know, dealing with the three tier system, that's just something that has to be able to break down over time and be able to give consumers what they want. And we live in an on-demand world and that is like the one segment that isn't really on demand yet. And so I think we'll, we'll end up seeing that changing over time. Yeah. What this time frame has also done is like the one argument that has always been there and it's been a strong argument. And it's one that I think a lot of us agree on is that mm -hmm. you know they we want to prevent people from underage drinking and when you started seeing like uh the generation z dressing up as like uh grandparents and going to uh liquor stores you know like they would put on all these costumes <laughs> and they were going to liquor stores i'm like yeah and have a face mask on like that's that's the kicker yeah you know because because the mask wow. you could separate it um you know, that is that has nothing to do with shipping. And it's just uh, and it's one of those where like the discussion on um, shipping and whether or not all states could ship. I mean, like you say, mm -hmm. Kenny, uh, it's it's slowly kind of getting broken down. And I do see Drizzly coming out very strongly on top, who happens to be connected to the wholesalers. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I'm curious uh, to bring Drizzly up. They they've started releasing their data. Have mm -hmm. you? Um, I've been paying very close attention to that. Have you been following Drizzly's data, and does it follow your data when it comes to online market sales? Yeah, I've known the the guys from Drizzly for a, a long time. We've we've done um, had them at some of the conferences we've done, and certainly um, you know, understand and know what what's going on with their their business model. And it's funny because when you talk to to Corey, who's their CEO, I mean, even years ago. Consumers still think that Drizzly is fulfilling um, orders and delivering bottles, and they are a marketplace. They don't touch a bottle of alcohol, so they're they're just offering um, a way for retailers who maybe don't have websites um, to go and 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 offer sort of a fulfillment opportunity. So it's a lot like shopping at Amazon, where you look at different prices. What's the best price for this bottle? I'm going to click here. Um, what are the retailers in my area that can deliver? And the retailer is responsible because of the three-tier system for checking IDs um, and actually delivering it, um, the bottle of alcohol. So, so, and Drizzly will say they don't touch the bottle of alcohol. The data part's really interesting. I think, I mean, listen, there are a lot of what we call kind of marketplaces. So there's omni-channel, there's marketplace, there's direct-to-consumer. There's also these sort of, um, these white label websites. So companies like Thirsty who work with brand owners directly and actually build um, a website. So you, you, you create the brand experience and own the brand. Um, and then the fulfillment, same thing happens through the retail network, which it legally has to, it's just that pass through for the client. So do you want to be sort of one in many in a marketplace or do you want to create your own branded site? Um, and I think the key thing too, is urban versus suburban. So when you start looking at penetration rates of where you live, um, not everybody can get delivery. 
right? So if you're in the middle of Maine somewhere, um, you're probably driving to, you know, maybe you're doing click and pick through like a Walmart or something like that, or to a local liquor store. Um, but, you know, there's control states, of course, which that's a whole different animal. Um, there are a lot of people who live in suburban areas where um, they can't get delivery because it's just, there's, there is not an area that um, one of the marketplaces covers. Um, so when we talk about e-commerce, it's actually really, really complicated because there's a lot of um, there's Instacart, there's Amazon Whole Foods. Um, not every Whole Foods has a liquor license. So it depends on the state. Uh, it's, it's a patchwork of information. So people always sort of say, hey, I'm going to get into e-commerce. And they immediately say, all I have to, I just have to do this one thing. And suddenly I'm, I'm on e-commerce. But ultimately, it still has to do with, are you, do you have distribution at retail? Because that's where the fulfillment has to happen. If you have distribution at retail, it's just a question of then who is who becomes that skin or that pathway into getting that delivery at retail. And there's a lot of really interesting, you know, things that are happening. That's very different than in other countries where you you can don't have that three tier system, and so you can control the process a little bit better. Um, if you want my guess and sort of what I I think will happen is there's going to be more and more specialist sites, um, right? So. Could be like, let's say there's a bourbon pursuit sort of a, a marketplace, right? So you're curating. Uh, oh, I like the idea. Keep going. Right. So you're curating. So you have an audience of people who are her bourbon aficionados, right? Um, who are looking for particular things. They don't want to just Google and, and, and stuff. They're looking for maybe curated collections of the right types of products. Um, you can create a marketplace, right? Where you are, are choosing those products and, and making it be a specialist site where you're picking and, and rating and sort of putting that together. Um, and then the fulfillment simply, I come in and say, Hey, I want to, you know, Fred recommends this great, you know, whiskey. I'm going to buy this. And I put in my zip code and then it connects on the back end with whichever retailers are certainly carrying that product. And that's how a lot of these marketplace sites work anyway. But I think, and, and, and you see this in, in other countries, is that you start to get, um, with anything, you start to get niche specialist sites. You know, so look at uh, mattresses and glasses and razors and all of these direct-to-consumer sites that have come up over the past few years. Like whoever thought that a, a site that sells razors to men direct or mattresses would be something anyone cares about. But the reality is, is that people want some specialty areas where they, buying razors and mattresses sucks. It's not a fun process. You don't sit there and say, yeah, I can't wait to do this on Sunday. I can't wait to go, you know, to, to the store and sit on 50 different mattresses. So there's this demand where consumers are like, listen, just make it easy for me. Give me the information I need, you know, give me the facts that I need. And let me just with a click of a button be able to do something. So you, you have these specialty sort of sites that come up. And I think with beverage alcohol in particular, you're going to see more and more um, specialty sites, whether it's tequila or whiskey, and people are going to really want um, that environment based on reviews and based on curation to really get, get more information on those products directly. All right, Fred, we got a roadmap. We got, we got action items now. I have this. it on record. I have it on record. <laughs> Does that mean we have to give her a cut? Yeah, definitely. All right, one and a half percent. That's what you. All call. right. Hey, listen, I'm in the data business, so you can't mess with me on the numbers. That's true. Well, we couldn't let that one slide. I'm sure you'll find you'll fact check our Excel spreadsheet somewhere. Yeah. So as we kind of start wrapping this up here, I kind of want to ask you, uh, you know, one last question to kind of bring it back to bourbon. You know, at the very beginning, you talked about you know the growth of bourbon market. You see this being like another twenty percent in five years. Where do you see the Groban, or Groban, the bourbon growth or the bourbon market itself in the short term, uh, say in the next two to three years? Yeah, I mean, so so last year we always say 2019 is like this mausoleum of like the last year of normal, right? So when we came out um, in May with sort of the the global annualized data, it was like, wait a second, this is this is the museum. This is what the world looked like for beverage alcohol. These were the trends. And so now everything is going to be, can we get back to those 2019 rates? Um, and, and every category is a bit different in terms of the slowdown and the effect. But bourbon is one of the ones, uh, in particular U.S. whiskey, that is um, weathering the storm really well. So last year it had a little over a 9% growth um, over the year prior. And we expect, again, for, um, you know, again, tequila, U.S. whiskey, certain categories that are actually not going to have the higher level of growth that they have, maybe not double digits, but they're still going to be growing. And I think that um, U.S. whiskey is one of those categories that'll remain really healthy. Okay. And then I'll give you longer. So people are putting down whiskey now that they're going to be aging for the next 10 years, 12 yeah. years. Do you still see this market being as big as it is way down the line? 
Well, that's a million dollar question. If I had the answer, then that would be another business we could start on the side. So um, yeah, so beyond the beyond the five year sort of forecasting that we do, I mean, the way that I would look at this sort of just rationally, and you guys get this is, is if we look back and I have charts actually that I've seen. So when we looked at the whole vodka whiskey, and you, everything's cyclical. Um, history repeats itself. I mean, how many times have you heard, um, you know, what we're going through um, be compared to what happened with the Spanish flu and potentially the roaring 20s and all of these things, right? So history always has some way of repeating itself. And I think what you see is you had generations, no, no one wants to drink what their parents drank. So you see these generations where, um, you know, whiskey was, was doing really well and then new things came along and then now there's this wave over probably the next you know 20 30 years where whiskey is uh, in everyone's repertoire and people are really interested you also have a, a changing demographic and you have you have uh, you have the internet you have people that are much more educated um, and are seeking kind of cult bottles and who understand what mash bills are um, and who are looking for those types of things and you also have more women drinking whiskey you have a much more inclusive category um, and whether everyone likes flavors or not, flavors in terms of introducing people to, to whiskey are also a big part of it. So I don't see um, that slowing down anytime soon. Um, cocktail culture in particular has done a lot for, for cognac. It's done a lot for whiskey. It's done a lot for gin. Um, it's really made people sort of appreciate um, and enjoy um, beverage alcohol in a way that they haven't done in a long time. Um, I look at it very similar to, to to chefs and food, right? So we are in this foodie culture where food network and you know people care about what they make and they're they're taking that same sort of care and consideration with with their cocktails, which is really great. Well, that's awesome. And Brandy, we really appreciate you coming on and kind of sharing, you know, your story, everything that's happening and as well as the data. I also want to let you give a chance if anybody wants to find out more about you or IWSR, where can they follow you or find out more about it? Oh, sure. So we're, um, we're on Instagram, LinkedIn, you can email me Brandy, B-R-A-N-D-Y. So it's uh, easy to remember at the IWSR.com. There you go. Remember like the Facebook and they're like, just drop the the. The, I know it's something <laughs> that has to do with domain registration. That's way out of my, uh, my level of responsibility, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, certainly, you know, we were, it's an exciting time. I think I have to, to end and, and I say this, um, again, aging myself, having been in this industry as long as I have been, even though the industry is facing a lot of challenges, whether it's a tariffs and pandemic, I mean, we're seeing such a big shift in, in how people eat, how people drink, what, what the occasions are. And it's just a really exciting time. And I don't think it's going to ever go back to exactly how it was. And in fact, I think that you're going to see just a different, um, a different way of sort of how, how the industry does business. And those challenges, I think, create a lot of great opportunities. So it's a really exciting time uh, overall for the, for the industry. For sure. And we're going to glad to have you back on here, maybe another year or so. And we'll see if your prediction yeah. is right. We'll be able to we'll be like, see. Ah, remember last time you, you lied to us. Well, hey, listen, um, we, we do the best that we can with stuff, but, you know, no one could have predicted what we're going through right right now, of course, too. So you do the best with what you have. There's always surprises. But ultimately, um, you know, again, I think consumers are are really driving a lot of what we we're going through right now in terms of innovation and stuff in the industry. So um, and thank you guys for for what you do, too, and, and helping the, the whiskey category. Um, I, I'll have to say it's a shared responsibility to keep whiskey on its upward path, too. So you guys are part of that. We'll do our best. Right, Fred? We try. <laughs> also, try to hold people accountable, too. So, Brandy, it's always great to see you. I mean, I can't believe it's 10 years now, 10 or so years since we no. first met. So, We look pretty good, though. We're yeah. holding up well. Yeah. Alcohol's a preservative. You, you more so, you far more so than me. But, uh, you know, it is yeah. great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Great to see you, too. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. You got it. So make sure you follow Brandy and the IWSR. Make sure you also follow Bourbon Pursuit on all oh, the socials. And if you like what you hear, leave us a comment, a review on anywhere that you get your podcast. And if you like the show, you want to support the show, patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit. With that, cheers, everybody. And we'll see you all next week.